0: by PFI Advisors.
1: Here's your host, Matt Sonnen.
0: Before we get started, we'd like to invite all of you to try out our operations, coaching, and community platform, the COO Society, free of charge. We're really excited by what we've built, and we feel it is the industry's first and only RIA-specific online coaching platform for operations professionals. The courses, the discussion forum, and our monthly member meetups are all specifically designed for operations professionals at any level, from veteran COOs to new client service associates striving for both professional and firm-wide growth. Find out more at COOsociety.com. Click the Get Started button at the bottom of the page. Again, the website is COOsociety.com, all one word. No payment information is needed to get your free trial started. Now on to this month's episode. Welcome everyone to episode forty-four. We're going to call this the Reggie Jackson episode. Uh, he was he was famous number forty-four. Uh, I'm really excited for our two guests today. They're both incredibly thoughtful leaders at their organizations, and we have a great conversation lined up. So let's let's dive right into it. Um, joining us from Sim Financial Advisors, headquartered in Winona Lake, Indiana. Is Crystal Creekmore. Crystal is principal and chief compliance officer at the firm, and uh, everyone knows I like to do my LinkedIn stocking. So Sim is the only firm she's worked for since graduating. Um, that is always amazing, and I'm I'm always I'm very impressed by the fact that Crystal went back and got her MBA about seven years ago while working full time. So I always find that very admirable. So congrats on that, Crystal. Um, I also love this little snippet from your bio. It fits in so well with what we talk about here uh, about COOs in general. It says, there is no job too small for Crystal and her enthusiasm for our clients, our employees, and our firm is contagious. And I just, I love that. So with all of that, welcome to the COO Roundtable, Crystal.
1: Thanks,
0: Matt. and happy to be here. Great. Well, joining Crystal today is our our very first repeat guest here on the COO Roundtable. Gary Bonner is joining us from his new firm, uh, Southwestern Investment Group in Franklin, Tennessee. Um, Gary serves as the firm's new COO. He was featured in our COO White Paper back in 2018, when he was the COO at Avalon Investment and Advisory in Houston, Texas. And I had so much fun conducting the interviews for that white paper that we did that. We then decided a few months later that we were going to launch this interview format podcast. And so the first few guests uh, on the podcast were uh, were just the ones that I had highlighted in the in the white paper. So Gary was kind enough to join us for Episode two back in January of 2019. And then we figured now that he's in a new COO role, we would bring him back. So welcome back, Gary.
2: Thank you, Matt. It's good to be be back with you. Great.
0: Well, um, I guess, Gary, let's start with you. Tell us about the new firm you're at.
2: I am, uh, as you said, the chief operating officer for Southwestern Investment Group, which we uh, lovingly call SWIG. SWIG was founded about 20 years ago and was originally part of a larger organization that had several other businesses besides wealth management underneath of it. Uh, in late uh, 2021, we partnered with a Merchant through a minority investment from them, and we bought ourselves out of the larger company to become completely independent. As you mentioned, we're in Franklin, Tennessee, and for those who don't know where that is, that's just south of Nashville. It's a great market to be in. We just moved our family from Houston about two months ago, and I joined back in March. We manage uh, around five and a half billion uh, under management with 13,000 clients across the country. Um, we have 176 employees or so in 11 offices in five states. Our clients, kind of across the board, from the mass affluent to ultra high net worth, take a planning-focused approach to helping our clients to reach the goals that they have and improve their financial lives. And we um, manage their investment portfolios that are kind of tailored to their needs. Before joining here at SWIG, the the growth model has been primarily uh, through organic growth.
0: Great. And Crystal, tell us a little bit about Sim Financial Advisors.
1: Sure. So Sim Financial Advisors, like Matt said, I'm in Winona Lake, Indiana. But we have five offices across Indiana and Michigan. We were founded in 1968, and we're actually on our third generation of ownership. So we're really excited about that. We manage roughly $3.7 billion in assets, I as stated on our last ADB. We have around 68 employees, approximately 1,300 clients. We are a wealth planning firm, so our ideal client would be an individual who needs financial planning services. In addition to portfolio management services, we serve a lot of corporate executives, healthcare professionals, business owners, or retirees or pre-retirees. And also uh, we do provide services for 401Ks and nonprofits as well. And same as Gary, we have historically grown organically and that's our vision for the future, as well as any opportunistic M&A opportunities that might come along.
0: Mm hmm. Third generation, I I should know the stats, but I think it's like 50 percent die off when it goes to the second generation. And it's 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 like 90 percent or something like that. (laughs) Uh, Don't make it to the to the third. So that's incredible. 1968.
1: Yeah, we're really proud of that. Right now we have 12 owners.
0: Amazing. Well, Gary, we've we've mentioned Avalon and Southwestern, or SWIG, as you called them. Um, tell us about your career path that that led you to where you are today.
2: I started my career at Arthur Anderson and & Company, which, of course, is no longer around. That became Anderson Consulting. Spent a couple of years there uh, in the accounting world. Went on to be part of uh, four startup companies. Probably the most recent would have been Avalon Advisors, as you mentioned. I spent 19 years at Avalon. We grew it from about 450 million under management with about 60 to 70 client families to uh, to 9 billion over the 19 years that I was there. I'd served kind of multiple hats that I wore going from a small firm to a big firm, but I was chief operating officer the entire time that I was there. I wore the Chief Compliance Officer hat for a while, or possibly target, I guess is a better term sometimes. (laughs) Uh, I was also the Chief Technology Officer. And here at SWIG, I serve as the COO and have a great team that we work with here.
0: And Crystal, we mentioned that uh, Sim is the only firm you've worked for, which I think is is just great. But tell us about the different roles you've held uh, throughout that time and, and how you landed where you are today. And I also should mention that in addition to principal and COO, you also hold the CCO title. So talk to us a little bit about, about all of that.
1: Sure. So. Graduated from Indiana University in 2000 with my bachelor's degree in finance and economics. And then like Matt already mentioned, I went back to college in 2015 and got my MBA, which was really difficult. It was a weekend program, so a lot of hard work, but excited to have that behind me. Um, and I'll be honest, when I went to college, you know, it wasn't my dream to become the chief compliance officer. Mm-hmm. I actually didn't even know what I really wanted to do. So after I graduated, I had different interviews lined up. Uh, We're the orthopedic capital of the world here in Warsaw, where I'm located. So I had interviewed at the orthopedic companies, more like an accounting role, Um, banking. I interviewed to underwrite insurance. And then ultimately, I landed on the position at Sim here. Kind of a funny story, actually. I actually had never heard of Sim. I was just out randomly dropping off my resumes in my hometown. And I saw the word financial in the company name, so I thought, I might as well just drop my resume off here, but I had no clue. Anything about sim, didn't know anyone here. And then when our CEO, at the time, he was doing a lot of the hiring, his name is Jerry Yeager, he's still here. He looked at my resume, and obviously he's a big IU fan, and so that caught his attention. And then he noticed where I went to high school at and what school district I would have been in. Well, his mother-in-law is a school teacher, so he called his mother-in-law and said, you know, what do you know about Crystal? And she said, oh, she was great in kindergarten. You have to interview her. So... Anyways, it just makes us laugh every time we think of that story. But that's how I got my foot in the door here at Sim. But in all seriousness, so you know, like I said, I started in 2000. We had roughly, gosh, probably three, four hundred million dollars in assets. So it's really exciting thinking in the last 22 years, going from 300 million to 3.7 billion. Um, When I first started, I started as a client service representative. I did that for several years, and then I moved on to the financial paraplanner role. I was a trader did that for a couple of years and then i quickly realized i wasn't really interested in going down the advisor path but my true passion was more in the back office dealing with operations and compliance so then i went down the ops and management path for probably 10 years and then ultimately um, when our cco retired it was a natural place for me to move into as the chief compliance officer role in 2016.
0: well so we have two first firsts. The is the first repeat uh, guest on the c o o roundtable and i'm I guarantee you over forty three previous episodes you're the first person that got their job due to a referral from her kindergarten teacher
1: <laughs> <laughs> right
0: that's amazing yeah. that is amazing yeah <laughs> <laughs> So let's, let's talk about, you, you, you both have brought up chief compliance officer. So let's talk about that dual role. Um, we see uh, that role is held by the same person quite a bit. Um, I myself was a dual-hatted COO and CCO back in my COO days. Um, and, and many of our former guests have, have worn both hats. So um, Crystal, how do, you, how do you juggle both?
1: So my primary title is chief compliance officer, like I mentioned. Um, so no matter what I'm doing, I always, always, always have my compliance hat on first. I meet regularly with our leadership team, our service team, our marketing department, IT department, investment department. So my primary goal is just to understand everything that's going on throughout the firm and the different departments. I want to make sure everyone's compliant. I want to make sure we're keeping up with all the new rules and regulations. Everyone's properly trained. So that's first and foremost. Well, then given my exposure throughout the company over the last 22 years, no matter what I'm working on, I also always have my operations head on saying, okay, is there any additional um, operational efficiencies we can can take away from whatever the project is at hand? Are there systems and processes that we can improve or enhance? Are there new rules and regulations that we have to adjust our processes to? Do we need additional training on those? Are we keeping our vendors accountable? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Um, Ultimately, this requires a lot of involvement from various people and departments. And we all have to work together it's not just me so i you know i always like to make sure everyone understands like to us here at sim the big thing is making sure we have buy-in from the top so no matter what if it's operations compliance marketing we always have the buy-in from the top down so at all of our quarterly meetings um, our ceo he stands in front of everyone and we talk about all this stuff we have we call it four corners so during the meeting he puts all of us on the spot. And I talk about compliance corner. We talk about HR corner, IT corner, marketing corner, just so we can keep everyone apprised of what's going on throughout the organization. So again, my primary goal is just to understand everything going on, making sure it's running smoothly and efficiently in the background while providing exceptional client service. Um, Obviously, I know there's a lot of varying opinions on this. This is just what works for us to have me in charge of both and given my experience and um, having been with the firm so long, it just kind of made sense for me to move into the CCO role once it was available.
0: You know, when when we get contacted by uh, RIAs and they say, hey, PFI, can you you know, let us know if we're running efficiently. One of the first things we do is, well, let us look at your compliance manual. And they say, no, 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 I I don't need a compliance audit. I go, no, I understand. But at most RIAs, and both of you are at larger than average RIAs, but at most, the compliance manual is the closest thing any RIA has to an operations manual. So we like going through that and then kind of walking through, okay, you know, these are the things the SEC tells you to do, but we want to ask how you're doing it and are you doing it efficiently and are you getting it done on time, et cetera. So um, I see huge overlap in the in the two roles um but gary um you, you're 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 split now <clears throat> excuse me you're coo by your, by yourself but you said in your previous uh role you were you were a, a dual hatted so talk to us all about your thoughts on on one person carrying the burden of both of those roles
2: yeah, I was. Uh, I had that that hat for a while at Avalon. I, uh, I'm glad that I did. Provided kind of a lot of context and what the regulators are looking for. I think it made me a probably a better COO, knowing and having been in that role. You know, frequently I have advisors come to me and just ask me questions about the RAA side of compliance. So we we had become a limited purpose broker dealer while at Avalon, so we brought in a a really good FINRA uh, CCO to take that role, to take the hat away. But, you know, from the RAA side, having, having the background, having sat in front of the SEC through two exams while I was there, uh, I think, dinner, you know, provided me with a lot of kind of insight and, in, uh, you know, how to mitigate risk in the business, uh, how to make decisions that are, you know, both good operationally as well as good from a compliance perspective. But as we grew, and, and especially here at Swig, uh, you know, we have a lot of lot of people, and I think in a smaller organization, when we you know we had started at Avalon, it was easy to wear kind of multiple hats and you know to have conversations and and with people and be able to you know spend time in both roles. But as we grew, there's there's such a burden on both compliance to ensure that we stay compliant, making sure at least here we have you know lots of offices, and our CCO does a great job of Communicating out to all the offices, and you know, for me, I, I can't imagine doing both roles. You know, maintaining the operations side of the firm with you know cybersecurity and operations and IT and everything else that goes into operations versus you know what goes into compliance and being able to do that well. Just kind of having to split the time because both roles are equally important. And I think you know, working with a good CCO is always best for me as COO to kind of view that as a as a partnership. And then you know kind of more largely as a as a leadership team having you know good heads in all of the roles so that we can work together as a team but again from my perspective i think it's better it's better to be to have it separated
0: yeah I'm, i don't know what the inflection point is but you're at 176 employees and so clearly <laughs> uh having individuals in both roles make, makes, makes sense. But uh, like I said, at the, at the average RIA, I think uh, it, it does make sense to have, have both. And I'm sure you and the CCO are, are meeting very regularly and working very closely on, on all of these initiatives.
2: Yeah. Anything that comes up from the advisory side questions or whatever that I might get, I've been doing what I'm calling a listening tour. So I'm going out and meeting with all the advisory teams over the first couple months that I'm here. So I'm visiting every office about halfway done right now and just asking a standard set of questions so things that usually come out of that uh around uh you know operations or you know can i do this or can i do that usually i just refer back to our our cco and then she will uh, kind of step in and, and help provide the guidance there
0: yep well, another topic that we talk about quite a bit here on the, on the podcast, because a, a lot of firms struggle finding the right organizational structure that works best for them. There's, there's clearly pros and cons to each, but it, the, the question always comes down to whether or not you centralize your operational processes or do you allow your advisory teams to work in, in operational silos, I call them. Um, so Crystal, I'll, I'll go to you first on this one. How, how are you guys structured?
1: Yeah, at Sim, we definitely centralize our operational processes as i mentioned at the beginning we have five different office locations so i often get the question crystal how do you know what the other offices are doing how do i monitor them and it just kind of makes me chuckle because even though we have five different offices it literally feels like we're all under the same roof since we are centralized and we're performing the same processes in the back office so one of the csrs here in my office at the headquarters they might be opening an account or scheduling a meeting and they're doing it exactly the same way as a CSR in a Michigan office. Same thing with trading. We can have traders in any office. We have a centralized trading department platform. They're using the same workflows, the same software. Same thing with planners. We have a centralized way of creating our financial plan. Obviously, the output, the recommendations, you know, all that stuff specific to each individual client's needs. But the back office is centralized. So to us, it's just it's what's worked, worked really well. It's really helped speed up our training process. It's cut down on mistakes. So we find it extremely valuable. The last thing I'd probably add to this is even though we are centralized in the back office, we do think it's really important that each client has a dedicated advisor and a dedicated CSR. So we think that helps with the client relationship and enhances the client's experience. But to answer your question, Matt, yeah, we are centralized on the back office.
0: Great. And Gary, how how is uh, SWIG structured? uh
2: we have more of a kind of a decentralized view we have you know advisory teams across you know all the offices and so uh each team kind of manages itself manages its own clients all over here you know inbound requests from a client to an advisor on a phone call and that team is responsible for ensuring that that client's taken care of i think for our from our perspective it's just a Higher personal touch to those end clients. I think the advisor probably more informed uh, on what's happening with his individual clients than if we had, you know, handed it off to a centralized group. We still rely on our custodian for back-end money movements and all that. But but for the most part, we uh, we handle it at the at the advisory team level.
0: Yeah, there's no right or wrong way to do it. Uh, just whatever works for for uh, each individual firm. But one of the challenges of centralizing the back office is how does everyone keep tabs of who's doing what and what is the status on certain projects or tasks if the advisory teams are broken into smaller service groups it's a bit easier for that team to just keep track of everything but with a centralized back office uh, advisors often feel that they're in the dark and continue to ask well where are we on the smith transfer of assets or did we get the wired you know did the wire go out for mrs jones whatever it may be so gary how how have you solved for the, that communication um, at Swig.
2: Yeah, we've actually uh, we, that's one of the reasons we've kept our, our, our team separate and yeah. having them oversee their their clients just to be able to not have to ask those questions and have to call into a central location. We're using a proprietary CRM, but that right now is not kind of capturing that information so nobody can really log in and see where the status is. As we uh, kind of expand here, we'll look at you know adding that functionality through a CRM where there's, uh, you know, workflow and tickets created, people can log in. But again, we'll probably won't deviate from it being done at a team level. We'll keep it at the team level and the team can just log in and see where things are.
0: Yep. And Crystal, I think that's exactly how you guys are doing it through through CRM, correct?
1: Exactly. Yeah. So we rely heavily on our CRM to keep track of everything. I think the last time I counted, we had roughly 200 workflows in the system. So obviously that didn't happen overnight. It was a long process took a lot of time building out all those workflows, but basically for every task, there's a corresponding workflow with all the steps required to complete the task. At any time, the advisor can log into CRM, see exactly where we're at on the transfer, the wire, whatever the task might be. Plus, in addition to that, we send our advisors a report every morning. They can see all the deposits and withdrawals that were made in their client's accounts, any trades that our, that our trading team placed the previous day. They can see all of that at their fingertips. And again, like I said, we have a dedicated advisor and CSR for each client. So to the client, they still have that team environment. The CSRs and advisors for that specific client are aware of everything that's going on for that client. They have weekly meetings collaborating and talking about different stuff that they need to be discussing related to those clients. So that's super helpful. And the advisor can ask questions at that point if there's anything they're unsure of or they want an update on something. So at the end of the day, I don't feel like our advisors feel like they're left in the dark. And we actually encourage our advisors to stay in their own lane and let the CSR run with these tasks. Yeah. So, you know, they can be out meeting with clients, talking to prospects, driving new business. In our eyes, it's just what works for us. The big benefit of doing it this way is if someone is out unexpectedly. Anyone can easily fill in because we're following the same processes and all of our, you know, the status of where we're at on these tasks the paperwork saved in a document management system. It's just super easy for someone to fill in and our turnaround times don't suffer.
0: Yep. Well, with that last question, we were really focused on internal communication, excuse me, and uh, keeping everyone abreast of what's going on at the RA, but I wanna shift now to how your firms are communicating with your clients and keeping them informed on what's happening in their portfolios. Our, our industry is definitely undergoing a shift away from the static performance reports that we print or, or we bring to the meeting uh, four times a year uh, or maybe email to the client four times a year uh, many firms are now relying on their client portal either the portal embedded in their performance reporting tool or the one that comes with their financial planning tool um, but crystal how how is sim leveraging your, your portal
1: I love this question, Matt. Um, and you're exactly right. It's always bothered me when we used to send quarterly to our clients. By the time they received it, it was 10 <laughs> days still. So, yep. this is a topic I'm very passionate about. A couple of years ago, we decided to make our client portal a priority. It was a project I worked on. It was a really fun project building out the portal. And I know immediately, you know, some people's radars, you know, antennas are going off. Hey, what, why would you spend so much time and money investing in a portal when you can read the industry magazines? The adoption rates are so low like I get that but for us the first reason we wanted to do the client portal was because we have a client survey every three to four years and a lot of our clients were asking about the client portal so in this day and age with technology at everyone's fingertips they were asking for it they wanted it so we we wanted to do it for that reason first and foremost and we wanted to stay competitive and then we wanted to enhance the overall client experience so that was first big picture reasoning the second reasoning we wanted to invest so much time and money in the portal was because we wanted not only to add value to the clients but we wanted to add tremendous value to the SIM team so we like you said it takes time to run quarterlies to mail them to email them all that stuff takes time it takes time to do meeting prep or maybe there's extra reports you have to run to take to a meeting so all that stuff takes time so what we did was we designed the portal a few years ago I sat down and I met with every advisor and team member and said, you know, in addition to the performance reports, what other reports do you find useful in your meetings or what questions are coming up in your meetings and what do you have to come back to the office to research? And then obviously you gotta turn around, get back to the client, get back to the CSR, the list can just go on and on. So what we ended up doing, we built a portal with everything that people would possibly use. So then fast forward to today, Whenever we had a client meeting, clients coming into my office here in and, and Winona Lake, they're in our boardroom, we actually log directly into the client portal view. We project that up on our, on our TV screen and we run the whole meeting directly out of their portal. So again, instead of having to spend all that time, you know, running reports, printing reports, getting a folder ready, it's all automated with the way that we built the portal. It happens every morning. All these reports get updated. It's live the advisor's easily able to go if they have a capital gains question, I have that built into the portal. If the client wants to donate highly appreciated stock, they can go, there's a view for that so they can see exactly what lots each position has and what would make the most sense to, to, to donate if that's what the client wants to do. So we have all that built into the portal. So for us, it was not only you know doing it for the client, but then to add operational efficiencies from Sim's perspective. Do we yeah. encourage our clients to log into the portal every day and look at performance? Absolutely not. Right. <laughs> but we know that the information is available if they want to see it, it's there. So anyways, that's worked for us. In the, in the end, we felt like it was a win-win our clients were happy. The data's live. It's no longer static. Meeting prep time was reduced drastically. So our teams can focus on more important um, items to help the clients reach the goal instead of some of this manual um, report generation stuff.
0: Yeah, I think I think and Gary and I have talked about this. So I'll, I'll go to you here in one second, Gary. But, uh, you know, I think you're right. The, the adoption rates, the, the, the number of clients that, that proactively log in to look at their portfolio, a lot of clients just say, hey, I've, you know, I've given you discretion. I just don't want to go back to work. You take care of it. <laughs> uh, a lot of this stuff goes mm-hmm. over my head. I don't, you know, <laughs> but um, right. the, the way you're you're driving the meeting through the portal is a little different. I, I like that a lot.
1: Yeah, it's worked really well, and it's allowed our clients to see it. But like you said, if they don't want to use it after the meeting, we don't care at all. <laughs> like yep. we know it's it's better for um, us operationally, and it is available if they want it. But we're not forcing it down um, yeah. anyone's throat.
0: That's great. So Gary, um, like I said, you and I have talked about this a, a lot. What what are your thoughts on portal use in general, and and how have you solved for this at at, the, at your new firm?
2: Well, Matt, I think uh, you know, kind of. Going off of what Crystal had said, the client reporting portal is a, a really important tool for both the advisors and clients. But you know, on any given day, especially at my old firm, we, we ran the statistics on this, the usage by the advisors was much greater on a percentage basis than the percent of clients that logged in on any given day. For the advisors, it would allow them to log in, see a client's portfolio, how are the investments doing? Are we meeting you know, the goals that we need to meet for the client? But for clients, it was, when we looked at the numbers, you know, we had about 10% of our clients that logged in a couple of times a week. We had about 25 to 35% that had logged in in the last month or two. Then we had about 50% of our clients that never logged in once we set up their login ID. And some of them, you know, never logged in at all, not to even set up a user ID. So, you know, as you, as you mentioned, adoption rates are low, but I think it's really important and crystal highlighted this from the from the operations perspective for an advisor to be able to log in be able to you know choose from a list of his clients go in and see something that he wants to see versus having to go find the information somewhere else and use the portal from an operations perspective but i think if you know if you're going to spend the money on a client portal then you want to ensure that the best experience for both the client and the advisor and we're currently looking at you know providers that will enhance both Client uh, and the advisor engagement, rather than just lumping together a CRM and a and a portal. So we want something. We're looking at a solution that might be better better on both fronts.
0: Yep. Well, an, another topic that we discuss quite a bit. Um, it's come up. Quite often on the podcast is is the book Traction and the Entrepreneurial Operating System or EOS. Uh, many of the firms that we've had on the on the podcast have adopted EOS and are running their firms on that framework. We went uh, we went really deep on EOS in episode forty two with uh, Christy Clayton and Melissa Bushman. So if anyone wants to learn more about EOS, definitely go check out that episode. But I know that both Sim and Swit are running on. EOS as well. So um, Crystal, tell us, tell us how long ago you adopted it and how you use it to to drive the firm forward.
1: Sure. Yeah. So we adopted the EOS framework about five years ago. Definitely one of the best investments we've ever made. Um, like I mentioned earlier, we are in our third generation of ownership. So the process really made us, um, you know, made the current owners stop and reevaluate what is our core focus? What is our core target, our core values? And then a lot of time, where do we see ourselves in one year, three year, five years. So the whole exercise was just very, very valuable. Um, What we also loved about the EOS process that this really helped create leadership paths and structure for the next generation. And then obviously like I already said the core values, that piece was huge. So we've always had a good culture here at SIM, but the EOS process made it even better and helped teach us how to better communicate the core values with our people, how to build momentum around them we hire, we train, we promote based on these core values, which for our firm, their service and integrity, teamwork and results are what our core values are. But when, and we spend time at every single quarterly meeting and, and that's something my CEO is really excited about. That's probably his favorite part of the meeting. Let's just take time. We tell three to five core value stories at our quarterly meeting. So we have various people throughout the firm talk about different core value stories of, you know, things that we did for clients or things that we did for coworkers, how that plays into our core values. So it just really highlights the great people that we have and how everyone's living day in and day out by these core values. So that was super cool. Um, The other stuff, as far as what EOS has done for us, the accountability has been huge. Just, you know, as we continue to grow, we all need to be rowing in the same direction. So the accountability that it's brought to the whole organization, to each department, like that's been amazing. The other thing is we have weekly leadership meetings. So I remember when we first got introduced to the idea, there's seven of us on the leadership team. We all thought, how in the world are we going to give up 90 minutes of our week? Every week to have a, they call it an L10 meeting. That is the best 90 minutes of the week. Um, Every Monday morning at nine o'clock, we all get together and it's dedicated time. We only miss the meeting if there's a death in the family or you're on vacation. And so, literally, we are able to solve so many issues so much quicker because before EOS, you know, it's hard to get a hold of everyone. You didn't have that dedicated time. So, it's just really great to, to be able to stay informed of what's going on in the organization, be able to discuss issues, solve them much quicker than what we've ever been able to do in the past. So, that's been great. And the last thing I would add is just one of the biggest takeaways of the EOS process is breaking these big projects down into smaller, they call it 90 day rocks. So, you know, prior to EOS, you might have this huge project. Maybe it was my portal project. Oh my goodness. How am I going to get all this done in a year? You feel overwhelmed. It's hard to get started. Well, now you understand what the ultimate goal is at the end of the year, but then you break it down into 90 day bite-sized pieces. And that has helped move our company forward. Each department is breaking these big projects down into 90 day rocks. And we're just amazed at how many more projects we've been able to complete. So in the end, I could go on for hours talking about the process, but we love it. It's working great for our organization. I'm happy to talk offline to anyone that's um, considering it.
0: Amazing. So Gary, how are how are you guys uh, using EOS? Well, prior to me coming here, uh, the team had
2: been introduced to EOS and had been using it. Um, my first day uh, at SWIG was actually at our quarterly planning meeting for the second quarter. And so the board and the management team uh, meet offsite for a day and go through and, you know, whiteboard what the rocks are going to be, breaking things down into tasks to and then assigning responsibility. So it's a, you know, it's a very collaborative environment uh, here that we have and, you know, following the EOS. Traction philosophy and you know creating our values and each week we we don't meet on Mondays like Crystal does we meet on Tuesday morning at 8:30 to 10 each each week and similar philosophy you only miss if you're uh, on vacation or death in the family or something significant happens but but we go through and we try to start the meeting with reading what our values are to kind of get everybody in the kind of focus on what we're there for and then we um, kind of follow the steps and follow the you know the normal L10 process and you know, go through the to do's and the IDFs and all the different components. And, you know, to Crystal's point, it's a, it's a great process to have, and it's a great way to run a, run an organization and run a meeting and feel like you've walked out of there accomplishing a bunch of things and getting ready for, you know, the next week where we're going to meet again. So, uh, also highly recommend it to any firm that's interested in being more efficient and being more focused and running the business in a, in a much better
0: way. Yeah, I think, um. You know, Christy Clayton was was talking a, a lot about this, that the, the role of the integrator, uh, obviously, uh, you know, that's in the EOS framework, you've got your visionary and then an integrator, the integrator really is the COO. And so I think that's why it keeps coming up <laughs> on this podcast is because I think a lot of COOs have taken on that role of, of integrator and yep. that the whole firm kind of rolls up to them and, and the buck kind of stops with them so um yeah it's, it's fantastic I'm, I'm learning more and more about it uh, thanks to christy i read a, i've already read a couple of the books that she had recommended about it and I, i'm trying to get up to speed on it but it, it does sound fantastic and it's obviously doing great things for both of your firms so it's great well, Crystal and Gary, I can't thank you enough for, for being here. Um, I should say, Gary, thanks for being here again. <laughs> um, you <laughs> both are, are so articulate of how you're running your businesses. Um, we've learned a lot from both of you today. So thanks again for taking time out of your, your busy schedules. You're both juggling a lot. So thank you both to uh, Crystal and Gary.
1: Thanks, Matt. Thank
0: you, Matt. Well, that is a wrap on the, uh, the Reggie Jackson episode here, number 44. We will talk to everybody soon.